you have a Bible, uh, if you want to open that to 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you, and it's right towards the end, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and I'll read that, and then I'll invite Mitch up. Peter writes this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, Mitch, over to you. Yeah, thanks. Good to see you guys. Good to be back. Um, sorry, Emily and the kids couldn't make it. Um, but yeah, an overnight flight with three seats for four kids, and one of them named London is a challenge. Um, we're getting through it, and it's going to be good. Uh, it's super good to be back here, just first place uh, after catching a quick cat nap and a shower at home, because uh, I missed you guys. So uh, let's just focus our time. Uh, let me help focus my thoughts and just pray real quick one more time. Father, thanks for this evening, for the lightning, for the rain, um, for the crops, um, for your provision in getting us all here, um, including me. Lord, help us to focus on your word uh, and to make it our guide tonight uh, to your glory, Jesus. Amen. So I don't know how many of you guys have read this book um, called Pilgrim's Progress, written by one of you. I had a I heard of it a long time ago, um, but it wasn't until a couple years ago when I was marooned out in the desert for six months with nothing else to do that I was like, hey, I'll actually give this thing a read. Uh, since then, I don't think I've stopped kind of referencing it, uh, and I'm probably uh, running the risk of being a broken record because I, I keep telling people about it because it's really cool. I even k- picked up Little Pilgrim's Progress. I have it on the front row, uh, written in the 70s, basically for kids, and uh, Maddox and I got through the first half of it, and he just thought it was a grand adventure novel that uh, just had so many weird, strange-sounding character names uh, before he kind of started to catch on, like, wait, this is, a, I think you're doing something, Dad. Like, wait, this sounds like some other stories I've heard before. So it's really good. I commend that to you. Uh, and this, uh, the original text, though, published in 17, or 1678 uh, by a Christian author, uh, John Bunyan, uh, and pastor. He published it in between multiple imprisonments, uh, and it since has taken on kind of a cultural relevance uh, of really incredible proportions, especially between our two countries. Uh, it started possibly as the first English novel ever published, 
Uh, and now it's been translated to over 200 different languages. Pilgrim's Progress. It's pretty much impossible to overestimate the effect that this little book has had on English Christendom in the world. So pick it up. In part one of Pilgrim's Progress, it's, the, the author is going to walk uh, the reader through a series of dreams. Uh, it's going to follow the trials uh, and the adventures of the main character, whose name is Christian. Uh, he's on a journey from his original home, aptly named the City of Destruction, to the Celestial City. So having been pointed in the right way towards the wicket gate by the evangelist, and after becoming really aware of the terrible burden that he has been carrying, Christian slogs through the slew of despond. He meets a guy called Mr. Worldly Wise Man. He's directed to the interpreter and the cross uh, where his burden falls from his shoulders and three shining ones appear and give him this sealed scroll that he's to present at the celestial gate. So in the allegory, we're only a short way through the first part of the story when Christian experiences salvation and he starts out on this narrow way through the rest of his life. So here's Bunyan's first experience to this baby Christian. I'll read it. I believe then that they all went on till they came to the foot of a hill, at the bottom of which was a spring. There was also in the same place two other ways besides that which came straight from the gate. One turned to the left hand and the other to the right, at the bottom of the hill, But the narrow way lay right up the hill, and the name of the going up the side of the hill is called Difficulty. Christian now went to the spring and drank thereof to refresh himself, and then began to go up the hill, saying, This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go, then wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Do you hear how Christian describes this first trial, this hill of difficulty? Listen again to those last three lines. This hill, though high, I covet to ascend, the difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way of life lies here. So I believe that this is Bunyan telling us, as Christian's approaching his first major struggle, and and what I want to zoom in on here is how we see a glimpse of Christian's new way of thinking. So, I covet to ascend this hill of difficulty, he remarks, because, why? I perceive the way of life lies here. So Bunyan, when he's presenting the reader with the first acts of his main character, who's just been transformed by the experience of salvation, shows us first his transformed way of thinking. So when faced with the reality that the narrow road was the steepest and the most difficult, we don't see Christianity cry, woe is me, and look for the alternate route, but we get a glimpse into his inner dialogue. We realize that his very perceptions have changed and been transformed. Christian desires to climb the hard road up the hill difficulty because he knows that that's the way that leads to life. So this evening, we're going to hear from Peter. We just did. We'll read again. And we'll realize that how we think is of utmost importance in how we live transformed lives. 
So catching us up on where we are in 1 Peter, we're now in the fourth chapter. We're on the home stretch. The book, right, the letter from the Apostle Peter written uh, to the elect exiles and Christians of the dispersion in modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was most likely written in the late AD 60s, uh, which is actually notable due to um, the increase in Christian persecution at the hands of the state. Probably not arriving yet, but soon thereafter. Um, it was interspersed with exhortations, obviously, to holy, uh, distinct living. It gives us tons of gospel truths, uh, distinct clarifications, and encouragements, as we see again today, to endure suffering and distress. So First Peter is pointing the reader um, to the assurance of future glory, among others. So Peter himself, never known to pull punches or hold back from the honest truth, uh, his first letter then, it's, it's massively important then and now for framing the Christian life. And in chapter 5, verse 12, kind of gives us a summary looking in retrospect. He says that he's declaring the true grace of God that we are to stand firm in. That's what First Peter's about. So last week we finished off chapter 3 by zeroing in on Christ's suffering and remembering that while his was ordained and absolutely unique, his was the righteous for the unrighteous, his victory over evil was proclaimed then and confirmed, and that he presently reigns at God's right hand in complete control. Last week, chapter 3, if you look back, it was laser-focused on Christ the victor, and it sets the stage for us uh, this week. So let's look at it again. Let's recage where we're at. We've just seen Christ the victor, and we've known that Peter is declaring the true grace of God that we are to stand firm in. So since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's all about Jesus. So before going any further, uh, let's just remind ourselves of that simple truth first. This church, this service, this book, this sermon, these thoughts, um, it's all about Jesus. So let's break down the text this evening. We're going to do it by way of uh, a thesis I'll throw out there, uh, and we'll see how that pans out. Uh, he's describing to us, Peter, that is, uh, he's urging us into this new way of life, but he's not doing so in a vacuum. Uh, I believe that what he's getting at is this. It's that a new way of life doesn't first appear externally. It starts with how we think. So we aren't getting just a, a just-do-it list uh, of the top transformation life hacks. 
So when I read the first 11 verses of chapter 4, especially in light of what just came before at the end of chapter 3, Jesus' complete and victorious atonement for sin after our previous estrangement from God, when I read these verses, I see how the gospel leads to a revolution in the thought life of the Christian first, and then before and beneath any visible transformation. I perceive the way of life lies here, said Christian, at the foot of the hill. So the question I want then to inspect to verify this thesis is this. Is how does the gospel shape the thought life of the Christian? And how does that lead to an unmistakable transformation in the way we live? If we're going to verify that thesis, a new way of life appears with how we think, then we're going to ask, from where in the gospel does our thinking change? And how does that lead to a new way of living. All right, so I'm running the risk of redundancy, so possible irrelevancy here, because in addition to my ramblings about Pilgrim's Progress and missionaries during kids' talks and stuff, I've tried to point us again and again to this theme of the Christian thought life. We looked a a year ago at kind of the men's ministry uh, and our theme, and Romans 12 played a central role, and so I'll mention it one more time here. In verse 2, it says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Not being conformed to the world starts with a renewal of the mind, a transformation of the thought life. But that's somewhat vague. So how? We've got to ask that question. How? What specifically about the gospel message causes this change in thinking? And then what does an unmistakable transformation in doing look like in a few specific areas. I believe that's where Peter is leading us, and that's the question that we're going to answer. We think differently why, and we think differently so what? So, the first four verses for this evening, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. The first way in which Christians are changed in the way they think, leading to that unmistakable life transformation, is that they adopt a willingness to suffer. So first, let's put ourselves in this context a little bit, and we'll try to put some bones uh, on a pretty general term of suffering. Um, because I think that if you look at a little bit of the context, you'll realize that the, the net that's being cast here around that word suffering is a pretty wide one, actually, not a narrow one. Um, Peter seems to be preparing his hearers for any and all kinds of present and future suffering. So let's listen here to the, maybe the right and the left examples. I think on the one hand, the suffering of Christ is specifically referred to. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So in its most extreme form, suffering is pictured as Christ being put to death in the flesh, in the body, in this life. In its most persistent, suffering is pictured as being maligned by the non-Christians for abstaining from sin. Maybe on the right bound. Just being maligned for your abstaining from what everybody else wants to go into. Maybe the right bounds of suffering. Not like being put to death in the flesh, but being maligned by everyone else. Peter seems to have in mind a a joyful and a willing preparation for both 
the left and the right, for his hearers. And that's something that was going to be uh, realized historically during the lives of many of these hearers as real state-sponsored uh, persecution ramped up. So then we're adopting a willingness to suffer. So where then does this new thinking arrive from? Why think differently? Well, first we hear, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So the Christian must know that suffering is not a sign of divine displeasure, but precisely the opposite. It's been said. If our Lord went through the worst, then we change our thinking about suffering because we've chosen to follow and be united to him. So he's our exemplar. We change our minds regarding suffering because we, no longer that, we know no longer that sin no longer has dominion and rules over us. We begin to be filled with all kinds of sympathies and tenderness towards Christ because we see all the more how great and unique was his suffering once for all, compared with our own. And we respond by moving away from destructive patterns of sin. Why do Christians think differently about suffering? Uh, Well, part of it is certainly that they look back at their history of sin and shame. Pictured here in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices. We look back at our past history with sin and shame with grief. We've already spent sufficient time living in rebellion. So our thinking changes because we've already experienced the dead-end road that that way of life leads to. We think differently about suffering. So then what? So then we become willing to suffer. We arm ourselves, is a literal translation, with this new way of thinking, like soldiers arming for battle. We make our sinful natures suffer. We think, I'm united to Christ... And this was his life. And then we see that now it's time to strive to live for the will of God in the rest of our lives. So conversion alters the mind, the judgment, the affections, and the way of conversation for everybody who experiences it. So it shouldn't surprise us that that way of living appears very strange to the unconverted many. We work for good, and we're encouraged even if we're spoken ill of, because so was Christ. We adopt a willingness to suffer. Okay, as we continue on, I'll throw out a phrase, which I think is going to be highly applicable as we go down to verse 5 and below. Spoiler alert. You're reading the newspaper reviews of that new film, right? It was just introduced and just released, and you're really looking forward to it, and you come across that little sub-blurb, and it says, spoiler alert. Super helpful. Thanks. Thank you for telling me. I did not want to go one step further. I knew that you were about to give away the ending. Whew, you almost gave away, but you warned me, so I like that. That's good. What about that inconsiderate soul who doesn't give you the spoiler alert, right? How about just shows up with glee after finishing Harry Potter 7 and just can't wait to tell you, yeah, guess what, who died? And you're like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, where was the spoiler alert? All right, well, Peter, he's okay in this text with a pretty big spoiler. Uh, And he's not hiding it because what he's after is just an utter mindset change and an utter life transformation from that. So the second way that the gospel shapes the thought life of the Christian and leads to an unmistakable transformation in how they live is that they know that physical death is not the last word. Spoiler alert. This ain't it. It's not the last word. Look at five and six. 
but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We think differently because of the gospel, because the reviling of unbelievers is not the last word, and because the wicked will be judged for their evil lives. Why do you judge? Who are you? Cries our generation. Valid. Fair enough and true. But we will all give an account. So spoiler alert, the one sitting on the throne has been here and he's coming again. So that living and the dead phrase, meaning us and all of us who have ever lived, will stand before the throne. Even the faithful of old, I believe it's referring to, have already passed away, await that final judgment. You see, Peter says, unbelievers do not understand the whole picture. Physical death, it's not the last word. The sign that Christians have wasted their earthly existence in needless suffering and distinct holy living. No, physical death's not the last word. The dead in Christ will be raised to newness of life by means of the Holy Spirit. So we think differently about this life. So then we realize that perseverance in the faith matters. We think so. We don't align ourselves with the oppressors because the judge over all things is coming again. We think differently about this life and physical death, so we're equipped to not hold on to it so tightly. David Platt said this. He said, radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort, not health, not wealth, and not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all of these things. But in the end, such risk finds its reward in Christ, and he is more than enough for us. So knowing that physical death is not the last word and having received the spoiler alert, that we will all give an account. That the dead who died in Christ will be raised. We live radically transformed lives. There's nothing that we can lose that amounts to a hill of beans compared to the magnitude of eternity with, with or without Christ. Physical death is not the last word. All right, to reach our last point, it's just going to be by way of a little bit of elaboration Because to live for the will of God, we've got to see the nearness of the end and then seek to magnify Jesus in our daily lives. So we just talked about how we think differently about time. We aren't guaranteed one more day here, much less decades and decades in which to work on seven steps to a better you. No, you don't have time for that. The end of all things is at hand. Pick it up in verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is at hand, and therefore the eminence of the end functions as a stimulus to action in this world. That's been said. Peter then calls us on to just normal virtues. He says, not extraordinary actions don't follow, verse 7, but normal, ordinary, day-to-day virtues. We change our mindset from 
Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit, right, according to James 4. And we change it to, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We're talking about the normal virtues, so we think differently about them. So let's, let's look and let's receive and then um, just process these four exhortations from Peter uh, right here in the end. Really, this is just the most practical of the what nexts of this text. So first, number one, he calls us to sobriety and watchfulness. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That realization that God is bringing history to a close, it provokes the believer to think sensibly, to be alert, be looking forward to it, to depend on God. And then that dependence on God, it's manifested in a life of prayer. Peter says to be fit for praying, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, be alert. The second exhortation, he calls us to brotherly love and charity. He says, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So, back to the imminence of the end, it provokes believers to love. It's not that love is atoning for sin and making it right or redeeming it in the eyes of God. No, it's that the lavishing love on others involves the overlooking of the sins and offenses of others. The property of true charity is its inclination to forgive and forget. Loving one another earnestly is not presented here as a passive endeavor, simply not holding grudges. No. Loving one another earnestly is presented here as an active, pursuing, sacrificial, forgiving love, especially for the brotherhood and sisterhood. And number three, we're called to hospitality. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So when you see yourselves as a family, when you're willing to suffer with each other through times of persecution and distress, when you resolve to live distinctly and differently in this world, then Christians should therefore just open their homes to one another. In that time, you know, in the text... If you can't afford lodging, you can't afford the hotel room, your traveling takes days and weeks, not minutes and hours, then you are at the will of the good-natured brotherly love and hospitality of your fellow Christians to put you up. The advance of the mission fully relied on the willingness of the Christians to open their homes at this time. In today's age... We would similarly show the world a radically changed mindset. And we would similarly declare, similarly declare that there's something way more important than my privacy and my own individual sovereignty when we practice daily hospitality and other-centeredness. I believe that third exhortation that Peter's given us. Last, the fourth and final exhortation that he gives us is that we think differently as we're called to steward our gifts well. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The goal of the Christian faith is that glory belongs to God in Christ. So we change our mindset from trying to glorify God through our own measures and merits to realizing that only the measures and merits of Jesus Christ bring glory to God. 
So we see what we have, what we know, and then we act differently. We manage now what we've been given for the good of others, not for the glorification of ourselves. Our abilities, from his grace. Our words, not from our own wisdom, but in according with the gospel. Our service, in his strength. We do our duty, not with our own ends in mind, but now with the glory of God through Jesus Christ in view. We see the nearness of the end, so we seek to magnify Jesus in our daily lives. This is our thesis we're going after today. That a new way of life doesn't first appear externally. It starts with how we think. So, has the text and not, hopefully, some simple reason borne that out this evening? Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, it leads. So we think differently about suffering and how it binds us to Christ. If the Lord went through the worst, then we change our thinking towards suffering because we've chosen to follow and be united to him. Therefore, we work for good. We're encouraged, even if we're spoken evil of. So is Jesus. Next, because they and all of us will give an account to him. We think differently, knowing that physical death isn't the last word. Spoiler alert. Perseverance in the faith matters, so the dead in Christ will certainly be raised. And last, the end of all things is at hand, Peter told us, so we think differently about the end. Consider it nearer than we do, than we did previously. We seek to magnify Jesus in our daily lives, the daily virtues, because those four exhortations aren't burdensome anymore. Those calls to watchfulness, brotherly love, hospitality, stewardship, they begin to make a lot more sense when we know how brief our time here is. And that only through Christ, not by our measures and merits, is God glorified. A new way of life doesn't appear externally. It starts with how we think. All right, so let's catch up with, uh, with little Christian and, and see how his progress is going up uh, the hill of difficulty. The other two, they were called formal and hypocrisy. They came to the foot of the hill also. But when they saw that the hill was steep and high and that there were two other ways to go, and supposing also that these two ways might meet again with that up which Christian rent on the other side of the hill, therefore they were resolved to go in those ways. Now the name of one of those ways was danger and the name of the other destruction. So the one took the way which is called danger, which led him into a great wood, and the other took directly up the way to destruction, which led him into a wide field full of dark mountains, where he stumbled and fell and rose no more. I looked then after Christian to see him go up the hill, where I perceived he fell from running to going and from going to clambering upon his hands and his knees because of the steepness of the place. Now about the midway to the top of the hill was a pleasant arbor, made by the Lord of the hill for the refreshing of weary travelers. Thither, therefore, Christian got, where also he sat down to rest. So friends, take heart. The Lord is with you in this journey. He doesn't give burdensome commands to weary travelers. He gives a change of mind and a change of heart to beloved friends. On nights like tonight, the sweet times of rest, with fellow brothers and sisters and his word. He will bear your burden. He will see you through. 
because at the end of the day, it's all about him. So let's pray. Father, thanks for this evening that we remembered it's all about you and all of our thoughts, our readings, our prayings, our singings, our comings and goings. Um, Father, you're only glorified by them if they're offered up in the strength that Christ provides. I pray that you would give us a changed mindset. You would help us see suffering differently. Be willing to enter in from the left bounds to the right bounds because that was the way that, that Jesus walked. And to be united with him is to follow him in all of life. Father, change our way of thinking instead of avoidance to be acceptance and joyful obedience, Lord. Father, change our way of thinking about time and death and this life. Help us to not hold it so tightly, but Father, help us instead to offer it in joyful service and obedience to you and to others, knowing that we'll all give an account and we owe that, we owe that explanation to you and not to anyone else, God. And so I pray that you would give us uh, just lives which are coherent uh, from start to finish and are consistent um, in our public walks uh, and in our private times, Father. Would you build us up and strengthen us um, knowing that the end of all things is at hand. And Father, would you just give us strength in these, in these daily virtues, just in these exhortations to love and, and charity and watchfulness and sobriety, uh, Father, would you just help us uh, to walk in them, not from some kind of a burdensome load, but instead by seeing that you have released that burden from us. You've set us out on the straight and narrow, and you have promised to provide all of the strength that we need for the tasks of the day. So, Lord, give us a change of mind, lead it to a change of heart this week, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.